uh, I've kind of grabbed the nuggets out of the books that I've read and, and preached it to you guys. So would encourage you to get onto our sermon player on our website or check out the Facebook link that I've shared and, uh, and listen to those teachings over the next week. And um, I'm looking forward to this next uh, season of fasting with you guys and seeking the Lord. Um, fasting can look different for each one of us and we'll kind of, uh, you'll, you'll be taught, you know, to be seeking the Lord for what that'll look like for you, uh, the 23rd through the 27th. So, um, so yeah, if you are, uh, in first Timothy, you want to turn there with me? Why don't we stand together and we'll read, uh, the whole chapter. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith of the pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who've served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This is the word for us from the Lord today. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat? This is kind of a part two of last week's teaching uh, concerning the qualifications for elders. We only really got through about half of the elder section last week before I noticed it was 1130 and that's uh, that's time to wrap it up for for mercy's sake of the children's ministry uh, back there. And also I can tell when you guys are like dead on that on me. So um, and then uh, and then we'll look as well at the qualifications for deacons, which aren't all that different. But. Uh, We left off in verse 3 last week, where there's the qualification, uh, these qualifications laid out clearly for us. And and I just want to say before I get into it, we want to remember the context that we're looking at. Uh, Really, the key verse of the the book is chapter 3, which we're in, verse 15. 
Uh, that is the verse that kind of unlocks the whole book for us. So we know how to be interpreting uh, some of these hard passages, tough passages, controversial passages. And we know that uh, this is a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing Timothy and he's telling him, uh, you know, uh, great guidelines so that we know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of God, which is the household of the living God, uh, the, the pillar of truth. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing that's going on here is, is we're getting qualifications for the leadership of the church and how the leaders are to behave and, and what their lives are to uh, look like. Um, and there's a lot of other things that we've looked at in the last few weeks that are good guidelines uh, and conduct for women, for men in the church. And, uh, and so verse 15 is a very big contextual key for us as we study First Timothy. Um, another big key for us is in chapter 2, um, around verses 4 through 8. And it's there that uh, God is given the name, or he's, he's called out the name uh, by Paul, that he is um, God our Savior. And I love it uh, that, that Paul calls the Father our Savior in that verse. He's God our Savior. And that Savior God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Goes on to say, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And that really sets up context as well for us as you then go into how men ought to behave within the church how women ought to dress in worship settings uh, how uh, maybe the role of women within the church and then the qualifications for elders the qualifications for deacons all of that flows out of the missionary context of chapter 2 around verses 4 through 8 uh, that God is a savior God who desires men to be saved. And so uh, hopefully you're getting involved in the discipleship groups in this church where questions are going out and you're meeting with your group and you're discussing Sunday's sermon. And it was there this week that the notes went out and, and maybe you'll get into them this week with your group uh, where we asked, why is it important to remember the missionary context of First Timothy when you're getting into qualifications for church leaders? And, and it's important because as leaders are leading uh, according to the will of God, as they are living blameless, above reproach lives, as they are um, teaching doctrine and the mystery of the faith and holding to it with pure consciences, the rest of the world is affected by how a local church is led and how it is governed. And so... However goes the leadership, there goes the church. However goes the church, there goes the world. There goes the community, there goes the nation, there goes the nations. Uh, and so it's important to remember that we're not just, you know, very isolatingly setting up leadership in our church and, and that the buck stops here and that the responsibilities end here and that the importance of it all is here. The whole eschatology of the world depends upon it. Because as every nation will hear about the saving work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, then the end will come. 
Then Jesus Christ will come and he will set up his kingdom and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And then he will judge the, uh, the, the dead and the living. And then he will bring about the new heavens and the new earth and, and just the beautiful end times uh, context of it all. So again, we're not just, oh yeah, you know, I guess a pastor needs to be blameless and, you know, that's pretty important and, you know, should probably be the husband of one wife and, and probably shouldn't be a drunkard and, you know, probably should, you know, rule his house well or not, you know, either way. And however it kind of works out in the end, you know, this is so important because like the kingdom of God is, is not dependent on it in a way, but also at the same time, that's, that's how he's designed the kingdom of God to to be shown to the world and to come about in end times. So it's the context is so much more vast than even just Calvary Chapel of Crook County or, or whatever else. So um, it's important to have the context of, of chapter 2, the mission heart of God. It's also important to have chapter 3, verse 15, uh, the conduct of ourselves within the church of God, which is the house of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So all that being said, we're kind of hopping into verse three, a little bit randomly, but it's where we left off. And that is that a, a man who desires the position of a bishop, verse one, he desires a good thing and he should not be greedy for money. That's one of the qualifications for a pastor and it's in the negative sense that he should not be greedy for money. He shouldn't be fond of dishonest gain or sordid gain, uh, filthy lucre, you know, um, and, uh, you know, uh, a man kind of with that in mind, he, he has just, he's content with godliness. He's content with wherever the Lord would have him. Just if I've got Jesus I've got enough. As Paul will later say, godliness with contentment is great gain. There was the story of a pastor who had been one of a small congregation for a few years, and he sought opportunity at a larger, more prominent church. And during his last Sunday, and it was time to say goodbye to everybody from his church, he's standing at the back of the church saying goodbye to the folks uh, when an old woman came up to him and said, Pastor, don't go. Don't leave us. You can't leave us. And he said, oh, Mrs. Jenkins, you know, it's going to be okay. The Lord will raise up someone even better than me to come and to take my place. And she said, well, that's what they all have said so far, and it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, the pastors ought not just be like, man, I just I'm chomping at the bit to kind of get out of Dodge here and kind of make it to kind of the next big place and my stepping stone to one day have a television ministry and and just kind of be that name that everybody's talking about. And, you know, because that has the context of, you know, great gain, uh, a guy that's desiring sordid gain or maybe even dishonest gain. Isaiah prophesies of shepherds who are greedy dogs who never have enough shepherds who cannot understand and they all look to their own way everyone for his own gain from his own territory in the last century a preacher named Orestes Brownson spoke of ministers who pay more attention to the fleece than the flock the desire the desire of a shepherd is for his flock and so in that verse, we see that this, this pastor, this bishop, should not be given over to wine, 
nor should he be greedy for money. Very interestingly, uh, a man named Oz Guinness, who's the great, great grandson of the founder of Guinness in Dublin, Ireland, that dark Irish ale, uh, is also the son of missionary parents from China. And he said, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out. But if he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. And in many conversations with pastors, and I believe unbiblically, they're very passionate that pastors have no beer, no wine ever. And I, I think there's great wisdom, but you know, they, they take a stand biblically that's unbiblical, I believe. But that being said, they, they just gloss over many other things that are also qualifications for pastors and just even men of God in general. And like Oz Guinness said, you know, you'll take a guy who's just, man, he is just covetous and greedy for money and it just shows in his lifestyle and you're going to throw him into the pastoral position or the deacon position. And, and you certainly ought not overlook one uh, for another. Gentle is another qualification that pastors should be gentle. They just seem yielding. They seem patient. They're very appropriate and equitable. They're gentle. And really, when you look at the qualifications for a pastor, they ought not be any different than that of the chief pastor, Jesus Christ. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see these qualifications in him. He is gentle, not quarrelsome. Doesn't mean that he never, you know, provoked conflict through preaching the gospel, which often happens. But he's not looking for a fight. He abstains from fighting. He's not a brawler, is what the Greek speaks of. He's also not covetous, which goes hand in hand with not greedy for money, not loving money or greedy for filthy lucre. And in John chapter 10, we have Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good chief, you know, elder, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. And a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then we have the contrast there. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and he does not care about the sheep. And so in this great shepherd passage showing our chief shepherd's hearts and not for those who would come after him, we're, you know, we're not to be hirelings, hired men. They're about the money. They're just trying to get the wage. And oftentimes, you know, there's guys that they've failed at every other career in their life. And so they decide, well, you know, heck, I can go in the ministry. Who can't do that? And so they go into the ministry and they're doing it just because, you know, it's just another job that I can do. And it's just very careful, very cautious for us that we are not hirelings doing, you know, probably out of everyone in this room, it's me here. I mean, this is, this is for me. It's probably not for you, Janelle, you know, but uh, I should not be a hireling as a pastor. It's not about the paycheck. It's about laying my life down for the sheep, being a servant leader. And Peter warns uh, the churches in Asia in second Peter That false prophets will come and one of the greatest marks of a false prophet 
is their greediness for filthy lucre. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, by covetousness, they will exploit you. And yet, sadly, the blinders of people are, are on and they just don't see this when they go following after various cults. They don't look at the, the lifestyle of their leader and see, you know, uh, man, this guy is just completely fleecing the flock. Recently learning about the Rajneesh in Antelope. And some of you have been talking to some of you that lived around here in the time that uh, the, the Rajneesh cult was happening there in Antelope, Oregon. Up on the big muddy, muddy ranch in the early 1980s where Osho Rajneesh loved the fancy clothes. Maybe not my style, but he liked the fancy clothes. The million dollar watches, 19 plus Rolls Royces, private jets. You know, when flying over here from India, he got the whole 747 and the whole top floor of it was for him. And he had this palace and all the people just came and just just poured money into that. And he just got richer and richer and more wealthy. And he began to fleece the flock. He had no regard for the flock, but for himself. It's exactly what the scriptures say a false prophet will do. By covetousness, they will exploit you. So that's okay to be looking at your pastor's lives to see, man, does this guy just have drive a way better car than anybody here? He's got the way better watch. He's got the way better this and that. He's got the, you know, man, the million dollar home on a hill. There's something very concerning. And I've seen it in my own lives with pastors in my life. And you ought to watch out for it in your own. This is a good qualification to look out for. When you look at the story of Elisha, and the Syrian warrior Naaman back in 2 Kings. And if you've got time and you want to flip back there and just learn where books are at in your Bible, just flip on back to the historical books. First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Just go to, uh, go to 2 Kings where you read about this Syrian warrior. He was a mighty man of valor named Naaman and he contracted leprosy. And no one in Syria could heal him but a little slave girl from Israel knew that there was a God in Israel who could heal, uh, could heal Naaman. In fact, that there was a prophet who'd been known to heal people. If we could just get you down to Israel, Elijah could heal you. And so Naaman got permission from his king and he took, it says, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing and went down to basically pay for a healing. And as he gets down there and he meets Elijah, Elijah says, yeah, just go dip in the Jordan. You know, he actually doesn't even come outside to greet this mighty warrior from Syria. He says, who's out there? Yeah, okay. Yeah, tell him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. You know? And Naaman's like, what? I drove all this way. Brought all this money. And you're telling me to go into the filthy, stinky Jordan? Aren't the, the rivers of my nation just as beautiful? Can't I just go dip there? Whatever. Like, this is dumb. I'm on my way out of here. And Naaman's servant says, dude, we came all this way. Is it a big deal if you just go down to the river and dip yourself seven? Maybe it'll work. Huh? Just do it. And he does it. He comes up out of the water the seventh time. His skin is like a baby's bottom. You know, uh, it's, it's, he's healed. It's incredible. And so he goes back to Elijah and he says, man, I'm sorry. I was kind of a jerk. I brought a ton of money, a ton of changes of clothing. It's beautiful stuff. It's worth its value to be healed. And so he gives, he offers it to Elijah. And Elijah says, 
or Elisha rather, says, um, you know what? Uh, no, that's all right. We didn't do it for the money. The Lord didn't do it for the money. Just, man, just the Lord be with you and be healed and awesome. And so Naaman goes on his way. But then Elisha's servant Gehazi got thinking. He came all this way, brought all that money. You know, he's going to use it for us anyways, you know. I mean, man, what a shame that he goes all the way back to Syria, having to pack all that gold, those poor donkeys, you know. And so Gehazi tracks Naaman down and says, hey, you know, hey, some guys showed up. And they, you know, they, they needed some clothes and they needed a little money. And, and so my master sent me to, to stop you. And we could use that after all. And so Naaman says, oh, absolutely. Take what you want. Take this. And as Gehazi gets back to the presence of Elisha, a word of knowledge from Elisha says, hey, where'd you go? Oh, I didn't, I didn't go anywhere. What, what's the problem? And he says, hey, didn't my heart go with you when you chased after that chariot? And he says this. He says, uh, is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Is it time to start receiving a bunch of cash for the ministry? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And Gehazi went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. And what a lesson that it's, this isn't time. This isn't the time to be living the life of the, uh, of the rich and famous, you know, you know, if a documentary crew were to come to and do our church, you know, we don't want that narrator, uh, this is the lifestyle of the rich and famous, you know, and like, let's pastor Rory let's see what he's driving, you know, and check me out, bling, 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 you know, um, this isn't the time for that. This is the time to give everything we have for the kingdom of God. And anything the Lord gives to us, we give it back out for the kingdom of the God so that the gospel can be spread among the nations. Kent Hughes says, some of the richest men I know are lovers of money. But the truth is, it's hard to have a lot of money and not love it. It's also hard to be poor and not love money. Whatever the case, one cannot love money and be qualified for church leadership. Hudson Taylor, who uh, spearheaded the China Inland Mission, incredible missionary man uh, for, to China in the late 1800s, was invited to come speak in a Melbourne, Australia church. And, and the pastor was introducing him with this eloquent, flowing, flattering language, sharing all that he'd done to establish a missionary presence in China. And this pastor said, and here we have now our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor, And Hudson Taylor comes up and says, Dear friends, I am only the little servant of an illustrious God. We want to make much of our God and Savior. As his under-shepherds, we extol the praises of the chief shepherds. And how tragic it is when you even look at the Old Testament. You have Eli, the, the priest, in First Samuel, and, and just, man, he's this, this is great priest, this great man of God. And yet when you read about his priest's sons, it says the sons of Eli were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. And as you read the story about this priest's son, they would steal from the people as they would come to offer up at the tabernacle. And so it says of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2.17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. 
for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It got to be where men didn't want to come to the house of the Lord because the shepherds were so corrupt. Far be it from us that that be the case for us at this church. That that be a New Testament church. I hate going to church hypocrisy and this and that. And you know what? Man, we want to purge out hypocrisy. We want to purge out the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. We want sincerity to mark our ministries. And the sad thing is Eli, who had a disciple named Samuel, who just had an incredible, he was brought to the tabernacle as a little boy. And he had a tiny little priestly outfit that he wore as a little kid. And he grew up there in the tabernacle and he became a prophet who would anoint King David. It says about Samuel that Samuel was old and he made his sons judges over Israel. It goes on to say, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Took bribes, dishonest gain, perverted justice. Now, the thing is, these stories of Eli and his sons and Samuel and his sons are so tragic. Lessons for us when you look at David and his sons. Man, it's possible to be a great leader and be a horrible dad. That is so sobering for me. Very sobering for me. Looking at Eli and Samuel, flawed in the area of discipleship within their home. And that point goes on to our next qualification for elders in verse 4. He is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. He's one who prays the prayer of Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not just me. It's my whole house that are servants of the Lord. Titus lays out in that pastoral epistle, That an elder is a man who's blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So just a couple other words to help explain what a pastor's children are to be like. Now, this isn't something that all of y'all should just be like, oh, pastor's kid, PK, put a ton of pressure on them. We're not perfect. Our kids aren't perfect, but we are disciples of Jesus. We are following after Jesus and we're making disciples in our home before we even come to try to make disciples in a church. We realize that sin is real, that battling sin is real, but we're teaching our kids about following hard after the Lord. The language there is that they are submissive children. With reverent hearts, hearts of fear before the Lord, hearts that are serious about the Lord. And this is something that you can always pray for your pastors about, that their children will be those that are submissive to the Lord and reverent before the Lord, that they aren't those accused of dissipation or insubordination. Pray for our kids. There's a lot of pressure on them that should not be there. At the same time, there's these qualifications over a pastor's life. And I know many pastors who are big name pastors who they've gone through those tough teenage years, college years with their kids where their kids have walked away from the faith. And that's a a tough, hard, hard thing. It goes on to say, if a man in verse five doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You know, it's great to have, um, you know, those times where you just see in your kids and all of us experience this, but you just see in your kids a passion for Jesus. You're like, oh man, that is so in spite of me. You know, 
When you see your son standing up for the gospel at school and persecuted at school. When, when your eight-year-old just begins to ask these deep questions about God. And then when you begin to see your little boy, you know, like Titus, he's three years old. And as we were worshiping, someone prayed a prayer last week during worship about your body was broken, you know. And he's, body broken? Body broken? And then he starts pointing at cross, the cross, the body broken. And, and, you know, just talking about Jesus and having a little conversation about the blood and the nails in his hands. And just a three-year-old. So it's encouraging as, you know, you begin to disciple, you're in the kids' Bibles with your kids. And even little Tatum, one and a half years old, Jesus, be Jesus, read the Bible, read the Bible to Jesus. Can you sing that, Tatum? And she's like, I guess if you want me to sing it like that, that's kind of weird, but. That's how babies are supposed to sing, I guess. So pray this over your elders and your pastors, that they would be those that lead their own house well. And not only with their discipleship of their wife and their children, but also just their, their, the practice that they have of stewarding their home and their resources. If you can't steward your home and your resources well, you have no business to steward that of the household of God. Guthrie says a lack of proper management of home life disqualifies the person from leadership in the church. Six, verse six. It's not six. That is the sixth verse. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So not a new believer, not a new convert, not newly planted. Pastor William Ward from New York said early in the 1900s, we must be silent before we can listen. We must listen before we can learn. We must learn before we prepare. We must prepare before we serve. And we must serve before we lead. That all takes some time. Everything from the listening to the learning to the preparing to the serving to the leading. It takes time to work that out in a young believer's life. And so a pastor ought not to be a new believer. As Paul says, if someone is a baby in Christ... They are still carnal. There's still this level of carnality about them. And he he would say that later on. Another author in Hebrews would say, at this time you ought to be teachers, but you still have to be taught the first uh, elementary principles of the faith. You're partaker of milk rather than meat, and you're unskilled in the work of righteousness because you're a baby. And so a pastor is not to be a baby. That doesn't mean that someone that desires to be a pastor can't be trained and raised up and work through those things. Just that wisdom says don't lay hands on anyone too quickly if they're a new believer. Why? What's the big deal? You know, we like babies. Why not baby pastors? You know, boss babies, if you will. Well, it goes on to say, lest being puffed up with pride... So this sin that comes in there is a puffed up with pride. And that literally means being filled with smoke or being wrapped up with smoke, full of hot air in a la-la land of self-centered fantasy that would leave them open for judgment. So that being puffed up with pride, a la-la land of self-centered fantasy, kind of living in the clouds, wrapped up in smoke. Leaves them open for judgment. And then another preacher, it was Guthrie again, that said, A new convert finding himself beclouded gives him pride and a false sense of altitude, making the subsequent fall all the greater. 
And so then it goes on to say, lest he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So we know the devil, before his name was devil, was what? <laughs> Lucifer. I remember being in, I think it was with Titus when we were naming Titus. And uh, Megan Graham was our nurse that day. And uh, we were talking about the name behind Titus Hart and the comforter and that he would encourage men. That would be a mark of his life. And, and uh, she's like, we've had people come in that would, wanted to name their kid Lucifer. And we had to kind of take him aside like, hey, so did you know that Lucifer <laughs> caused the whole world to fall into depravity? You know, okay. Um, they still went with it, but it's just good to know. Lucifer, not a great name for a baby. <laughs> but Lucifer, he was wrapped up in smoke, if you will. He was puffed up with pride. And his sin was that he wanted to be worshipped as God. Who is he that he would get all the street cred, that he would get all the praise and all the glory? I'm, I'm, the, I'm the archangel. I'm the worship leader of heaven. You know, I play these harps and I'm just the main man. I mean, come on, a little, little cred here, guys. That's all I'm asking for. His sin was pride. And pride goes before destruction. As Isaiah says, Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of congregation, the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. A novice elder has the danger of falling into that same pit. To where Jesus quotes it in Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so it's very important that an elder not be a novice. And verse 7 goes on to say, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so occasionally, you know, and we're thinking of raising guys up or whatnot, just stories come from people that know these people in their workplaces and in this and that. And they just say, hey, just be cautious. You know, this is a story I've heard about this. I just want you to know I'm not gossiping. Just, you know, if, if you're thinking of raising them up, here's a qualification that you might want to consider. Do they have a good testimony out there? The language speaks of a beautiful witness and a good reputation from those who are outside the church. Maybe other Christians or maybe non-Christians are just like, did you know that this guy's doing this stuff? It's good to hear from people that know this, these people 24-7 on the outside of the four walls of the church. I was encouraged this week because um, you guys have heard me talk about my neighbor, Buddy, um, for the last couple of years, they built this house next door to us and it blocked the walking trail down to Barnes Butte Reservoir. And so a lot of the neighbors were like, who does he think he is to block our walking trail? It's like, well, he's building a house on his property and that's the only spot to build it. But whatever, you know, just people, ah, I don't like him. And just, oh, just the, the, the drama of the feud in our neighborhood. I just felt like the Lord said, hey, I just want you to just out of the way, go out of your way, loving on this guy, like offer the building crew, your extension cord and power of your house and your hoses and your water. And they used it. They used our power. They used our, uh, our water. We had a swimming pool in the backyard. I told the, 
told the workers, like, hey, it's hot, man, summertime, go use our pool. And we found out, yeah, like, they were using our pool and just getting refreshed and going back to work. We had to drain the pool and then fill it back up with clean water. But, you know, only had to do like four or five times that summer. But, but we just went out of our way to love on them and, and plow their snow and just whatever we could do. And this guy, as we begin to talk, his name's Buddy, his nickname anyways, and he's an agnostic. And he said, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what there is. And, and I just, I know that all this didn't just come on its own. Something made all this. But I'll tell you what, I had a, a Christian mom and dad, and they used to beat me and they abandoned me as a child. And I don't want anything to do with that. So over the years, as he lived next door, we would talk and it just, I would always just be like, Lord, is it now like, what, just how, what's the extent right now that I should speak into his life? And just time went by and, and, um, and then I found out this week that he was on hospice, about 83 years old, and he was down at the hospital and in a matter of days that he would die. And I just knew like, I cannot not just share the full gospel with him um, before he passes. So many of you know, we prayed on Facebook together about it. And I went down and I went into his room and he was there kind of like halfway cognitive. And uh, as I got in there, um, his wife, Dartha, told me, this is what she said, that um, they'd only been married five years, but she said, I've never heard him speak more highly of any other man than he's spoken of you and I've never seen him love anybody so much as he loves you and your family. And I was just like, whoa. And I just felt like the Lord said, there's your platform to speak the gospel into this man's life. And I grabbed his hand. And you know me, I'm an emotional guy. I try to hide it, but then I just start quivering. And so I just got to let it out. And so just start just bawling and telling Buddy what a good neighbor he's been and how much I love him. And, and, I, and I just said, you know, and I know you're an agnostic and you don't know, but I... It would be so unloving of me if I didn't tell you the hope that I have of eternity with Jesus and what he's done to win that for us. And I shared the gospel and, you know, he had cotton mouth really bad. He hadn't been able to drink anything and he couldn't talk. I think that was just the Lord. Like, you've been talking enough. Now it's time for you to be quiet and listen. And I said, just ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. Just ask God. And, And the one thing I understood him say was, It'll never happen. I was like, buddy, just just do it, man. He loves you. He's paid for you. He's he's man. He's sent me here to share you his great love. And then as we began to, you know, he just kind of, and then I don't know, I don't know what this means, but two times as we were there, he just kind of, I'd talk with his wife and his daughter, and he just kind of, and then put his hands down, and then you know we're kind of talking, and then. I'm like, I don't know what that is. He couldn't talk to me to tell me what that is, but I just bawled and pled with him to receive Jesus as his savior. And so uh, part of me is just grieved that that was the time that it all came out to do that. And so, man, just, man, let's, let's say today is the day of salvation. The day is the day to preach the gospel. But I'm thankful for that opportunity. And I'm praising God that he's helped me to live a life that at least between the walls of our houses, I've looked like a Christian to him. <laughs> I've looked like a Christian, and man, I just hope that I was a picture of Jesus to that man. A good reputation among those who are on the outside. It's not that the outsiders are arbiters of the church's choice for those that would lead it, but it is true that no minister will achieve success who's not first attained the confidence of his fellows out there in the community. And so we have 
16 high qualifications for elders. We need to raise the bar high and hold it there. We need to see leadership as a calling. It's not a political position to be sought for, but it's a burden, a labor, a good work that we must accept. It's not the popular vote, but it's the man that's profiled here by Paul to Timothy. We're going to get into 13 qualifications for deacons here. And we have, first of all, the life of Jesus, again, that models the best servant we'll ever be able to see. In Mark 9.35, Jesus says, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it's our key verse of the book of Mark. Our youth group has it memorized. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this following list of credentials for deacons who would be servants in the church, it's nothing more than a leader. You know, a leader needs to lead by example. And our chief leader, Jesus, didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This list of credentials has everything to do with the gospel. And so let's look at it in verse eight. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. So we have this deacon. Deacon, I remember reading about uh, Eugene Sledge, uh, who wrote the book With the Old Breed, The Battle of Peleliu in Okinawa. And I remember he had a hound dog named Deacon. And I was like, what a great name for a dog, you know. Make it churchy, you know. Or King of Queens, you've got Kevin, his best buddy. His name is Deacon. What a great name for a friend, Deacon. What a great name for a son. What are these deacons? These hold an office within the church. The story is told of a deacon in the hospital, and his good friend and fellow co-laborer, a preacher, goes to visit him. The preacher notices all the medical equipment attached to the deacon, and he kneels by the bed with tears in his eyes. The deacon motions to a pad and pen on the nightstand. So the preacher hands his friend the pad and pen. And the deacon begins to write. Suddenly the deacon dies. At the funeral, the preacher is delivering the service of his good friend. And he says, I was with him when he died. As a matter of fact, I have his final words. A note that he wrote me while I was there by his bed. The preacher pulls out the paper and reads, Please get up. You're sitting on my oxygen hose. <laughs> Adam? That's how it's going to go down for us. He's, he's the deacon in our body. Say goodbye, buddy. Deacons are servants. A deacon in the Greek is the Greek word diakonos. Deacon, sometimes servant is translated as under rower. Under rower, so a servant or an under rower. And it speaks of the the slaves in the galley of a ship. They they weren't seen, but they provided the power for the ship to move. And so when we speak of servants and stewards of a church, when we speak of deacons and servants, we speak of a lot of times unseen men within the church that are laboring and causing movement within a church. 
They are one of the two offices in the church. The one we've talked about over the last week and a half, elders, pastors, that provide oversight and care of the church. And then these deacons, deacons having more of a service type ministry within the church. And God is so good. He is so good to give the right leadership to his church. He knows what's needed. As Paul wrote to the Philippian church, the first verse says that it's addressed to the pastors and the deacons. So what's the relationship between elders and deacons? Usually pretty good until deathbed moments when the oxygen hose gets stepped on. But elders or pastors or bishops, they are given rule of the church, oversight of the church to shepherd and care for God's people, especially in the areas of the word of God and prayer. And then we have the office of deacons, which are more service assigned, a role of service. There's a a little graph that I made uh, learning of um, graphs in community college. I made this incredible one here. It might be too complicated for you to understand. Um, Basically what you have is On the left, you have more of the gifting and ability to teach the word of God in the blue. And so pastors, elders, and bishops, man, they labor in that aspect of it. Do they still do practical ministry? Absolutely. Are they still servants just like Jesus? Absolutely. They have a role of practical service within the body. But it would be less than that of the office of deacon. Rather, we have deacons. Are they guys that just, I got no idea like, what the Bible says. I don't, I don't know any memory verses. I don't even know what is this thing. It's kind of a weird looking thing. I don't, you know. Uh, no, they know the word of God. We're going to see in just a little bit that they hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So they know the word, but maybe that doesn't necessarily mean their gifting is to teach the word. However, they are and very gifted in practical matters. They're able to take charge and oversight of some of those more practical things within the church. And we're going to see this played out in just a little bit in Acts chapter 6. But as a church grows in the New Testament, you may find a church with elders and no deacons. But you certainly will not find a church with deacons but no elders. Elders are those that... Without them, a church is not a church. It is lacking, and they must be set up ASAP. Again, as we talk about these office roles, do not think in terms of status. Okay? In other words, the elder's kind of the big man on campus, and you know, the deacon, you know, he's kind of just like, you never make it to be an elder, you know, or it's kind of a stepping stone thing. Maybe one day I'll attain. You're already thinking of it wrong, unbiblically. We always have to knock that out of our mind. When we speak of the office roles of the church, it's not status, but it is service. It's a role and it is a function that God gives and gifts to function in. Oftentimes today, leadership within churches is in chaos. It's in confusion It's cloudy within the church today because we don't use biblical language to describe the leadership of the church. All of a sudden you've got trustees and boards running things or you've got uh, vestries and this and that. It's like, okay, man, I don't even know what are we talking about here? Let's come back to biblical language so we know how the church is to be run and function. 
The task of an elder is lifelong. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Acts chapter 6 is a great pattern for us. Though it might not be a formal prescription. We'll just look at that in a minute. But, but let's look at some of these. Uh, forgive me as I cut and paste some notes in some weird spots there. Happens every now and then, I know. I have a welding degree, not a, not a preaching degree. Okay, anyways. What are the qualifications? Reverent. Reverent. Which speaks of honorable. They, they have lifestyle that is honorable, worthy of respect. They're men of dignity. Respectability is the operative idea here. But the language can also mean serious. These guys are a bit serious. It doesn't mean they don't have a sense of humor or that they never laugh. It means that whatever the task is, we realize we're doing it for the living God and we are serious about the task. It's kind of funny. Adam, who is one of the deacons in the church, if not the deacon in the church, as far as office capacity goes, um, when he first became a deacon, he used to always tell the elders, like, hey, can we stop joking now and get serious in our meetings, you know, because, hey, you know, we like to crack a joke as elders, you know, and we got this serious guy, uh, Adam, who can't take a little sarcasm every now and then. But, um, but it means that they're not flippant. Whatever aspect of service they are functioning in, it is done with gravity. When we look at Acts chapter 6, you know, some of those first deacons, it appears that they were man, men of high qualifications just to serve tables. What's the big deal? You're just serving tables. You're serving tables for Jesus. That's why there needs to not be a flippant attitude about it. So when someone is cleaning here in the church or, you know, repairing things at the church or serving in various capacities at the church, they're doing it with grave, with a grave heart because they realize they're doing it for the Lord. And it's so awesome to be here and to watch people serving with such excellence. I have in my mind, I just think of, I've watched men come in after work and clean the windows of this church. And it is one of the coolest things to watch because my kids go around, you know, those two doors right there. And I'm like, don't touch it. Don't you know that they're going to have to come in and clean that up? You know, I could do it, but you know, of course, sometimes I do it. But I'm like, oh no. And I'll just watch these guys. It's okay, man. It's okay. And just, you know, and I just love it. I'm just cleaning windows, but I'm cleaning windows for Jesus. I'm just opening doors, but I'm opening doors for Jesus. I'm just running the sound or doing worship, but I'm doing it for Jesus. Whatever that is, then when we are serving the Lord, it's for all of us here, pulling weeds for the Lord, taking cares of the flowers, decorating the church. There's no menial task for the kingdom of God. And so we do it seriously. The qualification is that they are not double-tongued. They're not hypocrites. Telling one story to somebody, telling another story to somebody else. They're not political and they're not about politics. Politics is two Greek words broken down. Poly meaning many and ticks meaning bloodsuckers. They're not into politics. Uh, they're true. They're not hypocrites. Out of the, you know, they don't, they're not what James is talking about. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. These things ought not be so. It goes on to say they are not to be given to much wine. It speaks of a great amount of wine. The ESV and the NASB, not addicted to much wine. Or literally, not wine too much. That's how the Native Americans used to say it. Not wine too much. 
The NIV says, not indulging in much wine, speaking of wallowing in it or giving oneself up to it. Not greedy for money. You see some of these similarities among elders and deacons in the qualifications. They handle the money often as deacons. And they need to be able to do it with integrity. To refer to Oz Guinness again, not drunk on wine or on money. If a man is drunk on either, he doesn't deserve respect. To be a deacon is to embrace a position of character from first to last. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And so they know the mystery of the faith. They know the gospel. They know what was concealed in the Old Testament and what is revealed in the New. The, the, the Lord's plan of salvation. They know the gospel, they can preach the gospel, and they can do it with a pure conscience. Look at verse 10. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. As 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 would say, don't just lay hands on anyone hastily. Where we need some deacons in this, so just like, bing, bong, bada, bing, bong, boom, boom, you know, oh, there you go, you know. No, we got to look through these qualifications and test these individuals. Doesn't necessarily speak so much as a time going by as much as it does. Look at the qualifications before you appoint somebody. Make sure that they are found blameless. His tested life oozes with character. Flagrant sins of omission and commission were not found in this man. So they were able to be set in the office. Guthrie says, a New Testament theologian, appointments of deacons as of every officer in the church demand careful scrutiny. Verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So we have one official deacon in this church, which means we have one official deacon's wife in the church. So Lauren, no pressure here. But we're going to be reading through a few things and some people are going to be looking at shit. I'm just kidding. Yeah, you might want to go to the bathroom real quick. Okay. So Timothy is now given these qualifications for a deacon's wife. Or some translations translate it women, perhaps deaconesses. Okay. Now, how are we to understand this? Deacons are to be distinguished by the word likewise in verse 8, which speaks of similarly to elders or in the same way as to elders. The same word is used in verse 11 to distinguish between the deacons and some sort of woman at this point. So what is evident here is that there is there's a group of women that are somehow involved in the diakonos ministry responsibility of the church. I'm going to give you four points of view on what that might be. Number one, these women are inherently involved in the diakon. In other words, they are deacons. They are deaconesses. They're mentioned here because they are just as much deacons as the men before and after in this section. It's my personal opinion that in the context, and if we're just talking about this passage, that's not at all what it means. Okay, um, They are clearly distinct 
from that in the office of a deacon at this point. But secondly, could be that they are um, actually full-on deaconesses. So first one is that they are deacons, and here they are deaconesses, okay? Uh, the difference is that they, are, they have a feminine perspective in their operation of the deaconess office. However, Paul does not use the feminine word for deacon here, deaconess, um, to describe them here. So it's hard to kind of take that position when that's not what he says here. Okay. Uh, third, they are female assistants to deacons. Um, it's preferable to number two. The idea of female deacons is not pointed toward in any way. So maybe they're just the assistants to the deacons. And fourthly, they are the wives of the deacons. Are they women who assist or are they the wives who assist? We got to ask ourselves the question, is it translated wife here or is it translated woman here? You guys are learning so much through the first Timothy, through the first Timothy, aren't you? I mean, we're learning about Bible interpretation. Okay. Um, And so get your Bibles open. You got your Bibles open. You still there? Okay. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, 11, 12, and 14, the same word is translated women, not wives. Okay? So in those contexts of that section, chapter 2, basically 9 through 14, every time you see the word women there, same word, gyne, where we get the word gynecology, Come on, Ty, dude, don't get offended, man. Stick with us, dude. Just stick with us. Okay. Okay. It's cool. We get the word <laughs> young ones these days. Is... Okay. He knows I'm kidding. We're friends. We're friends. Okay. Nothing like getting rebuked from your wife while you're preaching a sermon. Am I right, boys? Okay. Gyne. Come back, Holy Spirit. Gynecology can be translated uh, women or wife. And so in chapter two, nine through 14, it's translated women every time. Okay. Then in chapter three, verse two, verse 12 in chapter five, verse nine. And then in Titus chapter one, verse six, it's translated wife. And so in our Bible interpretation, it is legitimate that the use of the word in any given verse should be translated as it is in its immediate context, okay? That's the safe way of interpreting it and translating it, okay? Now, I have to say, going into this, I come from a background of churches that have women deacons, deaconesses, okay? And I don't really have a problem with that. Um, I've seen it work well. And, you know, just really love these women. They're the Phoebes of Romans chapter 16, you know, that Paul loved and said, she's helped me greatly. You know, they're the, the uh, is Priscilla or Aquila the female in that relationship? I mean, come on, name your people with manly names so that we would know. One of those two, like this deaconess type ministry, very well respected. And the women that I've known that in those churches have held deaconess positions very well respected. 
But it's the elders that oversee this church as we are going through the word and walking through the word. Absolutely, we see useful women within a church that can have roles of great importance. But as we're talking about the office of leadership within the church, um, we as the elders have come to, we just, we can't land it that there's actual deaconesses in that official form. Okay, so that we humbly say that. Um, and if someone else has a different position, we're not going to beat you over the head. Like, it's just, this is one of those open-handed gray issues that just, as we are trying to be true to the word of God, um, this, is, this is where we're landing uh, on that subject. Um, the translators of the New King James Version and the New International Version have made up their minds when they translated it. Uh, they knew what the context was and that it was wives of deacons in this case. If it was simply women and not wives, he would have specified this and clarified in the context that the women also needed to be the husband of one man. Okay, so the deacons and the elders, they need to be husbands of one wife and also ladies. No multiple men there for you, okay? Uh, and yet he didn't. In a time where purity and order in the home was such an issue when Paul wrote this, he would have preferred much more that the wives were serving alongside their deacon husbands rather than husbands serving alongside other women who were not their wives. Okay, For the sake of purity, for the sake of appearances, um, that's some understanding there. Now, why does the deacon's wife have qualification here and not the elder's wife? Again, don't think status, okay? Think service. It's because while the deacon's wife may share a level of service there, the elder's wife does not share the burden and responsibility before the Lord to whom she must give account in the same way that the elder bishop or pastor would. She does not share the teaching and the leading responsibility with her husband. So Lindsay or Delina or uh, Stephanie or Linda, these elders' wives in the church, they are not pastors and elders at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. They are not even assistant pastors at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. They don't share in the burden of that final decision that is made as me and my colleagues do, who will stand before the Lord and give account. Now, that doesn't mean we do not value their opinion. I'm telling you right now, like my intelligentsia level and Lindsay's intelligentsia level, like whoop, whoop, whoop. And so, so good to hear from her. So good to um, get the perspective of women as we might go forward with certain decisions. And, you know, how's this going to affect this, if we meet here, or do this or what that, you know, all of those things. But at the end of the day, they do not hold the same role or function or responsibility before the Lord that the elders do. Okay. And this is just the design of God for role and for function, how the church is to be conducted. Okay. Has nothing to do with status or value or worth. And we just hammer that out. Seems like almost every week as we talk about the hearts of submission within a church. 
That being said, even those that would hold to a deaconess position being biblical, they would look at this verse and say it's unlikely that this is translated woman at this point or New Testament professor Guthrie said the reference is too general to postulate with certainty a distinct order of deaconesses or of women deacons, but some feminine administration was necessary in visitation and in attending women candidates for baptism. So today we're trying to be true to this text. Amen? All right. Likewise, uh, these wives, their wives, deacons' wives, that's my position, I'm teaching it today. It's the Lauren Barneys of the group, uh, must be reverence or dignified. Worthy of respect, the different translations use. Also serious. Not slanders, as they often hear of the different things that are going on within the church. So they're not malicious gossips or talkers. Uh, The Greek is devilish. Uh, They are, stop looking at her. Not devilish. Everybody? Okay. Um, Temperate. She's restrained. Uh, faithful in all things, trustworthy in everything. Guess what? It's 1135. I'm going to end this bad boy. Got to bring it in for a landing. Um, And then it goes back to deacons. The men must be husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house well. The logic is impeccable. The outcome is predictable, Hughes says. If their house is in shambles, the church will be in shambles. Worship team, Work your way on up front here, please. And we're going to close by looking at Acts chapter 6. But there while you're in verse 13, let's just look at it. It says, for those who, this is just beautiful. I've got a star next to it in my notes as we're closing. Please just keep focus as we're wrapping up. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful outcome of those that are living in a service capacity within the church. I believe, of course, first, uh, first context would be those that are serving in the office of deacon. Man, there's just a work going on in their lives where they will just have incredible opportunity to be bold witnesses in their community. I think that's the first. But I think as well, anyone who's serving in the church, it just opens up these incredible doors for witnessing the gospel. And so as we close, we flip over to Acts chapter 6, and we're just going to end with looking at um, what many believe and would say these are the first deacons being put into office. Acts 6, verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procanor, Prichorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. So we have a problem. There's too much work to be done that those that were responsible for praying over the body and ministering to the body through the word of God 
They were neglecting that work so that they could help serve the tables. Okay? And so there was, there was a role that was needed. Men who were specifically there to serve with the tables. And those qualifications were good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. So that the apostles could go spend time in the word so they can preach the word well and right and be men of prayer. Average church, it's been, uh, there was a Gallup poll that the average church expects their pastor to work 116 hours a week according to their expectations. And many of those expectations can easily be brought over to the role of a deacon so that those service aspects could be well done. Now, as we read on, we've got verse Eight of Acts chapter 6, this Stephen was a deacon, full of faith and power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. This is a deacon. This is a servant. He's full of faith. He's full of power. He's doing signs and wonders. And there arose some people uh, who basically they disputed with Stephen. And look at verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. This is a deacon. This is a servant. Preaching the gospel with such wisdom. I mean, he held the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. As he would preach the gospel in what's been called one of the greatest Old Testament sermons of all time in Acts chapter 7, they picked up stones and rushed towards him and they stoned him. And as he was dying, Acts chapter 6 verse 15 says, All who sat in the council saw him looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So what is the result of serving well as a deacon? Preaching the gospel with great boldness and having good standing. And so as we close today, we're looking not at status, but at service. And I just believe, I've been so excited to teach chapter 3. Because I've just believed that the Lord wants to call And first of all, we're just going to say, call men towards these offices. Call men towards these offices. And I just want you to be able to respond to the word today. And if you're here and you just, and you've just sensed in the years past, or maybe even recently, like the Lord would want you to be a bishop or a pastor in this church. You may not have all the qualifications down just right, but man, you would just love just, you just want prayer today over that calling on your life. You want the elders to know so that we can just reach out to you and begin pouring into you, into this office of an elder and office of a pastor. Maybe you just feel, man, one day I know I'm, I'm going to be sent out from this church and plant a church. And, and, and maybe you just know that, man, this sermon series the last two weeks has been for me. The Lord wanted to show me the qualifications so that I can grow and repent in some of these areas and and just be disciplined in these areas and just begin to walk blameless and above reproach. If you're here today and you you just feel like the Lord would call you as a man in this church to be a pastor in this church, would you just stand up where you're at today and we'll just know, like these are people that they're part of our church and they just want to be part of the leadership of this church and we'll just come alongside you. It's not any big altar call or anything, but you just want to respond to the word and say, I hear the calling on my life to be part of the shepherding of this flock. It's okay. You don't have to be a professional yet. We're going to be working with you. We want to grow in you. We want to just see that hand on your life. Anybody here? 
Awesome, Deej. Awesome, Ease. Awesome, Shane. Very cool. Anybody else? It's like, man, I just, man, I've sensed since I was a little kid, I had a calling on my life to be a pastor. I've just walked away from that. And, and today is just a day the Lord just touching my heart. And I just know that, praise the Lord, awesome. How neat. <laughs> just so cool to see guys are just like, man, the word of God is just like calling me. Praise the Lord. How about, so we kind of know who stood up for that. Melvin, awesome, man. Didn't even see you there. Why don't you guys be seated and anyone here, you just feel like the Lord just stirring in you to be a deacon in this church. Jesse, awesome. You standing, my brother? Right on. What deacon in this church? Right on. And you just see the qualifications here and you're like, man, I know I don't like totally measure up. I just, but I know I want to work. I just want to be poured into. I want the leaders of this church to be pouring into me. I want to help spread that load. Man, did you guys notice that it said that when the deacons began to deacon, the word of God spread in the community and like the community leaders started getting saved. How awesome seeing men, uh, Perry and Jordan, standing up to be deacons. Easy, I know that's been on your heart for a long time. Anybody up here? It's like, man, I feel more. <laughs> Adam, you're here, buddy. See you. So cool. Let's have those elders stand up again. Just those that you just know that the Lord's calling you towards that. Stand up again. We'll have those deacons, elders stand. And let's just, just pray over these friends. As we do, I was just thinking of another verse. It's in the Psalms. It says, when the, when the leaders lead, how blessed it is when the leaders lead. And I would say also when the servants serve. And maybe as you just look through this, you're a gal here today and you know our position on deacons, but it doesn't mean that you don't have this a great role to play and you just want to be a servant. Maybe God's even calling you to be more of a servant and just be open-eyed and looking for ways to just be servant and living a life of service in this church. Why don't you stand as well? You just feel the Lord just saying, man, I need to step up and be part of serving in this body we want to just open up for gals too to respond in this way lord we just pray today over calvary chapel of crook county uh we just look at these qualifications and we know that that is a high bar but when your spirit is working in the lives of men that is a that is a bar that that god can do in our lives and so i just pray for those men that have stood up saying i just sense a call towards eldership in my life and i just want to just say okay lord I want to start moving towards that. Lord, those here just that, that just sense just that call to be a deacon and to just step up and and um, and just to be an under rower and help provide movement in this body. Lord, just pray. Just, we just would pray for that hand of the Lord to be upon uh, the men that are standing here and then the women that have just said, man, I just I want my life to be used in service of the Lord. In this incredible service capacity, would you just anoint the men that are standing, the women that have stood? And, and Lord, just let this church be marked, not of that of status, but of just people living out service. And raise up the offices in this church, Lord, those offices of deacon and elder as well. Let's just close. Why don't we all stand together and uh, just do a chorus, Johnny? Would that be okay? Close with a chorus. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I want to live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment.
Lord. We would all say that together. Amen. Amen. Thanks guys for sticking around longer. Uh, Man, just know if you stood today, you're going to be contacted and reached out to, and we're going to just be getting together with you and working in those ways.